and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Last week we finished up in chapter 5 looking at the responsibilities of husbands and wives in the marriage relationship. And that began this whole section that deals with specific members in the body in specific arrangements and how they're to be carried out. The whole section was introduced with every member submitting themselves one to another in the respect of the Lord. And then it got into these specifics like what husbands should do and wives should do. And carrying on dealing with different relationships, we come to chapter 6 and verse 1 where it begins with children Obey your parents in the Lord. Unless you want to do something really, really bad and they don't want you to do it. Right, Noah? No. No. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Whether it's something you want to do or you don't want to do. Or something you want to do that they don't want you to do. Or whether you agree with them or disagree, or even understand it or not. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the instruction to children. And isn't it wonderful that God, in his word, specifically addresses children? That this is important. And it's important for them to know this and important for them to do it. And God doesn't say, parents, tell your children that they should obey. He speaks directly to the children themselves. Mm. That God speaks directly to children, saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's a right thing to do. It's a right thing because God said it's a right thing, and God designed life. And for children of, children of parents, just like all children of God, There's times where we have to just trust that God knows better than we do. That God knows more than us. And when he tells us as children that we're to obey our parents in the Lord, that God designed life that way, and that's the arrangement he made. He didn't make it so that children were born today and tomorrow they were off on their own. Now, Could he have done that? Yeah, he did it for other animals, didn't he? There are animals that are born one day and the next day, boom, they are off on their own. Mm -hmm. You know? And others that, you know, it may be a a short time, but it doesn't take long before they're off on their own. But with children, God designed life so that there could be that period of time, that time of them learning, that time of them growing. That time of them being prepared to live life has a glory to God. Live life in a way that's just the absolute best. 
There's only one qualifier in this verse when it says children obey your parents. It's not whether you agree or disagree or your parents, you know, said it in a way you liked or didn't. The only qualifier here is the phrase, in the Lord. But that is an important one. It is children obey your parents in the Lord. And that phrase, in the Lord, indicates one who is locked in in service to the Lord. In the Lord is, indicates service. It indicates somebody that's committed. It indicates someone that's walking with God. And that's, that's the qualifier. If your parents would ever tell you something that was contrary to God's word, are you required by this verse to do it? No. No. If your parents said, okay, I've decided our family is going to worship Buddha tomorrow instead of the true God. Well, I don't really want to worship Buddha, but I'm supposed to obey my parents, so I, I've got to worship Buddha now. Is that how? Oh, no. Wouldn't that be silly? Yep. Wouldn't that be silly? Of course. Yeah. God doesn't contradict himself, and God would not ask anyone, including children, to do something that would be outside of his will or contradictory to it. Now, you know, doesn't mean that every kid should just decide, well, that doesn't sound right to me, so I don't think that's the word, so I'm not going to do it. You know, but it does, on the other hand, if it clearly isn't the word, well, then that's not something that you should follow. And just because a child's a child doesn't mean that he doesn't have the right to understand God's word and to, to say, well, you know, how, how is that right? It, that just doesn't seem to fit with what I understand. But that said, then it is the responsibility of children to obey their parents. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And that promise is in the next verse, verse 3, that it may be well with thee, and, thou, and that thou mightest live long on the earth. When you go back, when it says it's the first commandment with promise, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the Ten Commandments, the first one that has any promise with it is this one, that if children obey their parents, then they will live long on the earth. They will live long on the earth. You know, now, that's not just another way of saying, you know, I brought you in and I can take you out. <laughs> Although in the Old Testament, eh, there was uh, a provision for that if they got to be a certain age and they weren't, if they were real rebellious. But it's a promise of God. It's a promise of God that if children do that, they will live long and it may be well with them. They'll, they'll live long and prosper. <laughs> I always think it would be interesting. I wish somebody would do this sometime. When they're conducting all of these different studies of, well, how did you get to be 100? Asking them, what, was, what kind of a kid were you? <laughs> you know, were you a, a, a real rebellious kid or were you a pretty obedient kid? I, I would just love to know that sometime. I'd love to see how many people that have reached longevity followed that promise. Wouldn't that be cool to know? But the promise is there. Verse 4. Now, after dealing with children, God goes to the other side of this relationship. 
and he addresses parents. And ye fathers, or parents, it's, it's fathers in the text, but it's there to represent both. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Provoke not your children unto wrath. I probably have spent more time thinking about the full meaning and implication of that phrase than practically any other one in the Bible. That's, that's true. Um, we did a whole class, Loretta and I did a whole class some years back on raising children according to God's Word. It's still available for people that are interested in it on, online. Um, but we did this whole class on it, and I covered this verse in great detail. But it wasn't, that wasn't the first time that I really contemplated exactly what that meant. I thought about it from the time I became a parent, or even before that. What does it mean for fathers to not provoke their children unto wrath? What, what exactly does that mean? What qualifies as doing that? Does it mean that every time you see some kid throwing a tantrum, that their fathers, their parents have violated this verse because that child is wrathful, because that child's angry, because that child is all filled with wrath? No. Is, that, is that what it means? That Well, that can't be. That can't be. Because it also says about children that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. It says that in Proverbs. And Proverbs also talks about what qualifies somebody as being a fool. And it's not you're a fool because you're silly. That's not what it's not. Foolishness is not synonymous with silliness. That's not what it means. Foolishness is one who lacks wisdom. And a fool, it says in Proverbs, is known by their wrath, known by their anger. So if a child has foolishness bound in their heart, it's bound sometimes to erupt in wrath or anger. So just because a child is angry, just because a child's mad, just because a child's having a tantrum, that doesn't mean that the parent has mishandled a situation necessarily. It doesn't mean that the parent's necessarily responsible for that. It may simply be attributable to the fact that that child still has foolishness bound in their heart. And yet there's something here for us to consider and understand his parents. What would be something that would provoke a child into wrath? What would be something that we as parents could do where it would be not now, not just their foolishness, but our fault, our fault for mishandling the situation? And I'm certainly not going to answer that one in the next few minutes for you. But it's something that every parent has to consider. They have to consider when they are in situations with their child how to best handle that so that they can do the second part of this, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because that's what's set in contrast to it. In contrast, if you're not going to do this, then do this instead, right? Let him that stole steal no more, but instead rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. So rather than provoke your children unto wrath, parents are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I'll, I'll deal with both of those words in a second here. 
One thing I can tell you on a broad spectrum is that if you're not doing the second part, whether your child ever has a tantrum or not, you are doing the first part. You are provoking them unto wrath. If you're not bringing them up in the nurturing and admonition of the Lord, you are provoking them unto wrath. Why? Because that word provoking, you're inspiring them. You're moving them toward wrath, and that doesn't necessarily just mean their anger, but rather that day of wrath ultimately could be what it's talking about. If you're not doing what your job is, if you're not doing your responsibility and doing it the right way, then it's on your head. Whether or not they act out, whether or not they have horrible temper tantrums or just bottle it up inside and you never even know it, if you're not doing your job, then you're provoking them unto wrath. So it's so important that you do your job. And here again, and I make this point when I, when I teach this in the, in the class I do on raising children, this is one of those things that, again, begins with telling us what not to do. Before ever getting around to what to do, we're told what not to do. Okay? Just like physician, first thing, physician, do no harm. Parents, do no harm. Don't provoke your children unto wrath. But instead, instead bring them up, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To bring them up is to raise them up. And in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That word nurture is a very important word. It's the same word that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says... <clears throat> All scripture is God-breathed, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. That word instruction is the same word, has nurture. And it's used in other places and translated different ways, but that's the real full meaning of it. It is to instruct them fully. To instruct them fully, which involves, just like it does in 2 Timothy, doctrine, reproof, and correction. Bringing them up in the nurture of the Lord is to fully instruct them. To fully instruct them. And it's to train them up in that. To train them up. And Proverbs talks in great detail about that and how it's done. And how foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them and other things like that that we don't have the time to get into. But that's all part of it. It says the rod and reproof, the rod and reproof, because a child needs to understand. And the older they get, the more they need to understand. The younger they are, the less they can understand. The more the rod comes in, the older they are, the more they can understand, the more the verbal reproof comes in, because it's important. It's important for them to understand so they understand why it's right, so that they can continue in these ways, so that beyond the time of being under direct parental supervision, this is built in their heart. What is right is built in their heart. And that all enables that parent to, to give them that full instruction, that full instruction and admonition. And admonition is the reproof. It's a gentle form of reproof is what it is. In other words, it's not enough just to instruct, but also to be there and watch over 
And when there's a need to give some, some further instruction, some further reproof that you do it. It's like you can be trained, you can go work, start working at a new job, okay? And let's say it's a decent place where they actually do some training. You know, that may be a rare one. But let's say that actually happens and you've got like two, three weeks of them training you for the specific things you're going to be doing. Now, mo no, I don't know. many jobs, I can't say most, but many jobs, probably most, you still have some supervision after that time. Unless you're working totally you know, on your own, out on the field or whatever, you're still going to have some supervision even past the time you're trained. So that if you know, somewhere down the line you're, you're doing something different, something wrong, well, then that person that's supervising you, it's their job to come along and say, okay, this is how you're supposed to do that, remember? So it is with parents. It's that nurture and admonition, and it's all part of the, the training process, and that takes time. It takes time. Verse 5. Now we move to another category of life. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Servants in our culture, in their culture, that was one thing, you know, how that arrangement. In our culture, it's generally talking about employees and employers, and you could substitute those words here to understand the meaning. And those servants or employees, it says, to be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, meaning those people that have hired you to do the job. With fear and trembling. <clears throat> now, that's, that's a figure of speech. That doesn't mean literally you have to be shaking in your boots every time the boss talks to you. It's not literally fear and trembling. It, it represents respect and obedience. But it's that kind of level here of obedience, that boy, you're just, you know, ready and, and right, willing to just follow those orders, to just do what they tell you to do. And then it says, in singleness of your heart is unto Christ, not with eye service, has men pleasers, but has the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. What God asks us to do when we're in the position of working for someone is work hardly into the Lord. That we're not to do it just as men pleasers with eye service, you know. And, you know, I trust that nobody here is that kind of worker, but you've probably all encountered that kind of worker who, when the boss is looking, boy, they're right there working hard. And as soon as the boss goes out of the room, they're goofing off. That's just doing eye service as men-pleasers. That's not our motivation. We work heartily as unto the Lord. We work as though you're, it was the Lord that was your boss. Now, by no means am I making a direct comparison to your boss and the Lord. I, I'm, I wouldn't presume that your boss is as good as he would be or, you know, put that kind of responsibility on him. But the point is, we're, we're not really doing it for that guy. Yes, it's, he's the one we're listening to, but the one we're really working for is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who, you, that's who you're working for. 
That's who you're working for. Boy, if you think about that, then you really want to do a good job. You know, if you're thinking, I'm doing this like, you know, wait till, wait till Jesus Christ comes by and sees what a good job I did and says, boy, you did a great job there. That's the heart. That's the attitude behind it. Verse 7. With goodwill, doing service has to the Lord and not to men. You know, here it's, it's said it basically in three different ways within these first few, within those verses, that we're doing it to the Lord and not to men. We're doing it for him, to him, not to men. Verse 8, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. The fella that's actually telling you what to do, the fella who's signing your paycheck, you know, whether he fully recognizes and appreciates all the heart you put into it, all your hard work, that's immaterial, really, if you recognize that the Lord does, you see? Whatsoever good thing any man does, he'll receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. You're not just, when you're doing it for the Lord, you're not just doing it for the, the money at the end of the week. You're doing it for eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. Eternal rewards you're laying up there. When you're doing it for Him, that's the promise. Verse 9. Here again now, we flip to the other side of this relationship. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening. Do the same things, meaning the same kind of heart. That the master should have the same heart toward his employee that the employee does to the master. That that master should treat that employee the same as he would as if it was Jesus Christ working for him. Boy, there's something for employers to think about. Forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is the respect of persons with him. (laughs) So, you know, you may be the head of Apple Industries or whatever it's called, and everybody else may think that you're the most important thing that ever lived and treat you with such deference. But for the Lord, he's no respecter of persons. He doesn't think any more of you or going to treat you any differently than the guy that's down on the assembly line, if there's such a thing there. You know, whatever you do, Again, God's going to to recognize it, and you're going to be treated and rewarded according to that. And when you walk in love as an employer, then you're going to be rewarded for that. Just like that employee who, who walks in love and works with that love of God is going to be rewarded. And it says specifically that they are to forbear threatening. They're to forbear threatening. That it's not going, it's not this constant. Well, if you don't do this, you're out the door. Or, you know, boy, if you don't do it, I'm going to chew your butt out, or whatever the case may be. That, that that's not the way that employers are to, to treat their people. But they're to treat them the way that they would treat the Lord Jesus Christ if he was working for them. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in who? The Lord. The Lord. Lord. Not in our own strength, not in our own abilities, not in anything else but the Lord. That's what we're strong in. 
We're strong in him. And that he never changes. I am the Lord, I change not. When we're strong in him, we're always strong. If we're strong in our government, then if we've got a strong government, we might be okay. If we've got a weak government, maybe not. If we're strong in the power of our country, again, it just depends. If we're strong in the economy, why, it's a good economy, I'm doing great. Well, that's a pretty fluctuating thing. But if we're strong in the Lord, that never changes. That never changes. And in the power of his might, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. When we're standing strong, when we're being strong in the power of the Lord, then we put on that whole armor of God. That whole armor of God, everything that God's given us to be equipped with, and it's enumerated here in these verses. And we have to do that so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. The methods, the, the, the things that the adversary is doing to try to get at you. Does it say simply pray to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil? No. Mm-mm. No, it doesn't. Now, prayer is in here. But it doesn't just say pray. It doesn't say just pray. And yet, so many Christians want to reduce it all just to prayer. Well, so long as I pray, then that's all I got to do. I don't have to know anything more. I don't have to do anything more. I just pray and let God take care of everything. That'd be nice, but that's not the way it works. (laughs) That's not the way it works. Because what's even nicer is that God has committed such power unto men, and we have to be strong in the Lord and put on that armor. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not flesh and blood. It's not the person that gives you a bad time. It's not the enemy in another country that's fighting against you. It's not the person persecuting you. It's, it's none of that. It's not flesh and blood. It's not the argument with this person or anything else but rather against principalities, powers, spiritual weakness from on high places. It's a spiritual battle. Mm. It's a spiritual battle, and the adversary is the god of this world. He's got a whole kingdom that he runs just like an army, and all of that is what we're up against. But we win that fight as we put on the armor. But you want to put on the armor. You don't want to go into battle without it. Verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. You've got to stand. You've got to stand. You've got to to drive your stake into the ground, like the song goes. You have to take a stand in life. Take a stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. Your loins gird about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness, knowing who you are in Christ, that you are righteous, that you can stand in the presence of God at any time without any sense of sin, guilt, condemnation, shortcomings, not because you're so good, but because Jesus Christ paid that price for you to make you righteous. And that's what protects our heart. The breastplate protects your heart. You want to protect your heart? Put on your righteousness.
And, verse 15, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your feet shod, you know, you, you want those nice boots, steel-toed boots on, you know. And what it is, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith or believing, worth you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts or arrows of the wicked. I love that I've seen as many of the kind of movies as I've seen because I've seen that scene in so many movies where they these guys are launching these fiery arrows, you know. They got these fiery arrows and they're attacking the castle and they're launching those fiery arrows out of their bows. And there are those guys with their shields and they're just stopping them. The Romans, they really had it down to a science. They had like they'd make one just wall with their shields. That's how they'd fight in formation, and nothing could penetrate it. They stood together that way. There's a great picture about the unity and the mystery, right? But it is that shield of believing that stops the fiery darts of the adversary. Believing. Your believing keeps all of that stuff from getting to you. So if you feel like you're getting hit too many times by the adversary, you need to keep your shield up more. <laughs> you need to keep that shield up so those arrows never get to you in the first place. And, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, which is referring to the hope, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Our offensive weapon, the rest was defensive. Our offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is what we fight with. It is written. It is written. That's how we win the contest. We have that, that Sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that allows us to win in the spiritual battle. And we'll finish up the rest next time. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.